Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the show. I had planned this evening to do uh, something completely different, and I will. Uh, my plan was not to talk about vaping or police state abuse or my sex life or toilet hygiene or anything like that, and just do something purely, completely different. But there are some important developments that have gone on in California with um, Safada's latest efforts. So before I start the more esoteric part of the show, let's actually talk some vaping. I have uh, joining me, uh, Stefan, uh, Stefan Didact. Are you there, sir? Can you hear me? Uh, I am here. How are you doing tonight? Doing well. You're loud and clear. Thanks for calling in. Uh, if you would, please give us an update on what's been going on in California. I've been following it uh, loosely. Um, should be more, but uh, there's so much weird shit going on in New York. I've kind of been focusing on that. But I know you guys had a very, very successful fundraiser which was immediately attacked in the press laughably. But uh, tell us uh, what happened. Uh, you can start whenever you, wherever you want. Okay, sure. Uh, boy, here I was hoping we were talking about your sex life. <laughs> Not tonight. So, uh, yeah, uh, last we spoke, we were uh, arranging the two fundraisers and the two meetings, and uh, frankly, we were a little skeptical about turnout and even more skeptical about being able to raise funds and actually doing it because you know what none of us have any experience fundraising so i'm happy to report that uh, in the first three hours uh, over at the socal meeting we managed to raise one hundred and fourteen thousand five hundred and fifty dollars wow and yeah in three hours that was uh you can imagine i was having a, a tiny little mini party here in my office I mean, I wasn't physically present. They, they Skyped me in to uh, render a speech. But, uh, yeah, that was overwhelming, literally overwhelming. And then a few days later, we had our uh, fundraiser here in Sacramento. And we did sort of the same thing, uh, different lineup, different people. And we don't have a total tally yet, but uh, it's looking like 40000 plus. plus there's still um, some payments coming in because there, there were some cards that were uh, bouncing and uh, a few checks that, that needed to be rewritten. Mm -hmm. But it looks like the total over the, the six hours of meetings is ending up at around $165,000. That's amazing. Amazing. I, I think that, that that's yeah. got to be more than has ever been raised in that kind of a time period or maybe in any kind of time period for uh for fighting for vaping it, it rights. certainly seems it, it certainly seems like like this was the biggest fastest fundraiser ever and uh, here here's my message if we can do this everybody else can do this it takes an effort uh you need to put a positive message on it you need to be motivational about it but I think we might have just started the ball rolling everywhere. You know what I think maybe is uh, the silver lining for this horrible announcement that the that the state of California published this 22-page document stating vaping to be, or, or electronic cigarettes to be a public health hazard. And that might have been the spark. I don't know. It doesn't really matter what, what it was, but um, I, I don't know. I think that it, had... It some, was the spark. It was. Okay. Well, actually, for, for me, it was the Curbit campaign that they launched. Uh, we already had sort of plans in the works, but we weren't sure how to get the vendors involved exactly because, well, you know, uh, apathy and all that, and I don't have to tell you about it. But uh, the Curbit campaign got me working on uh, a counter campaign, 
And I already knew that that this thing was going to go California-wide. I didn't know exactly in what form, and that took shape uh, two weeks later when uh, the Department of Health came out with that, protect your family from e-cigarettes. And that really, really lit a fire under the, the industry in SoCal, and those two things combined really were the spark that we needed. In fact, I'm, I'm going to send Professor Glantz a fucking thank you note because he did something <laughs> we were not able to last year. <laughs> you should. You should. <laughs> oh, actually, I, I'm, I'm seriously contemplating of actually doing it. <laughs> Why not? So, yeah, the boat events were, were pretty good. I've had a turnout of about 130 in SoCal and a little over 70 in, in Sacramento. And everybody was really glued to their seats when we described the bills that were coming up, the lobbying process. Uh, we were shocked because we asked, how many people here know about the deeming regulations? And about four hands went up. Mm. We asked about who knows about the, the SB140 bill that's coming up, and five hands went up. I asked about who knows about this curbit campaign in the muni buses and the BART trains, and half the room raised their hands. Which really shows that um, even in industry, people see the negative PR, but they don't see the political game. Exactly. So education was, was really a very uh, important aspect. Plus, of course, uh, uh, it was a really great day here in Sacramento because I got to meet Tom Baker, Edward Wolf. That's amazing. First, and, <laughs> and, and look, and you know, he he was the one who, who mentioned to me. He said, "Hey, get stuff on on. He's got he's got some things to say." So it sounds like you guys are friends now. That's nice. Uh, I think we uh, we managed to uh, impress uh, impress Edward with uh, what we pulled off and and how we did it. <laughs> well, I think you impressed everybody. Wait, you know what? I'm I'm perfectly happy with. <laughs> well, I, I think you impressed everybody, and um, 160 grand is a lot of scratch. What what are you going to do with it? Well, well, first of all, what what's the worst of the worst that you were facing with this legislation, and then how are you going to use that 165 thousand to fight it? Right. Well, the 165 is is just uh, uh, short of our goal because we were aiming for 250, but we weren't aiming for 250 in two meetings. Uh, we're going to have a few more fundraising events. We're going to have some some events in SoCal and NorCal, which involves consumers and raffle tickets and vendors actually do, doing their part to raise more money. But uh, the worst we're facing is a bill by Mark Leno. Uh, it's a kitchen sink bill. It basically throws everything you can imagine in there, including the definition of tobacco products for all the hardware. And as written, that would cover the batteries as well. well it, it's yeah. one of those bills that would destroy industry in California as we know it. Right, right. So that's the the worst part we're we're facing legislatively. There's uh, three more bills we're expecting at least three or four more before the filing period closes. So uh, the money is going to be allocated in three ways. Uh, we already spent four months finding the perfect lobbyist. And we were not looking for a defensive strategy. We were not looking for just a relationship builder. We were looking for a killer, someone who specifically goes in and kills bills, because killing bills is cost-effective. We've done it last year several times very effectively. And... There's just no arguing and, and trying to find a compromise with, with really bad legislation anyway. So uh, part of the money is going to uh, fund lobbyists for the remainder of the year. Uh, another part is going to fund a in-print PR campaign that is going to go out in San Francisco in Glance's backyard to undo 
the damage that he's doing with the California Department of Health and the, the curbed signs and all of that. Uh, we're still working on the committee that, that's going to deal with the content, but we've got the publisher lined up. Um, it's a company that, that's fairly well known around here. They take really complicated stories. They turn it into uh, hard-hitting and heartfelt, emotional brochures that go out with uh, any form of publications, magazines, and newspapers, depending on what demographic you want to hit. Uh, another portion is going to uh, a PR agency that's going to put us in touch with uh, media around here in California. So uh, expect more uh, TV appearances and uh, newspaper articles and things like that. And the last portion is going to, yes, as you can guess, a law firm. Because once you start doing the PR thing, you have to cover your ass. You have to really make sure that you don't overstep your bounds, you don't have any liabilities, and everybody says that we're going to sue the state. Unfortunately, uh, we don't have the funds for that, and uh, it's questionable whether that would even work. But, uh, yeah, it's a three-prong uh, uh, action plan. So political lobbying, PR, and legal. Well, it's it sounds like you're well on your way. You know, the, the, the Safada um, branch in New York has also begun fundraising, though it does not know. seem to be nearly as uh, as successful as yours. This now, you you guys uh, in the in the scope of six hours got to about 160k, uh, and probably more to come over time. Now, this this New York fundraiser, which they're doing on Indiegogo, started on uh, February fourth, and. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's like two weeks ago, and well, they've got four thousand dollars yet. So not quite on. I mean, it's that's that's not good. I know, I know. We we we, we had fundraiser meetings uh, be, before we actually started. Uh, I don't think uh, the California, uh, the sorry, the New York chapter of Spada is entirely involved with the portion that is the public crowdfunder. Uh, personally, I, I, I'm not a fan of, of public crowdfunding this way. Uh, one of the rules we set here in California was very specific. We do not take a single red penny from consumers. This is an industry battle, and industries should consider this part of their ongoing business cost. It's very simple. You're in a high-risk industry. You know it when you look at your insurances, when you look at your payment processors. You're in a high-risk industry, and costs for PR legal and lobbying are part of the landscape. Uh, you don't see McDonald's go, gee, our, our, our liability insurance is going to be uh, uh, 13 million more next year than it was last year. Let's set up a crowdfunder and uh, see if our customers will pay for it. Yeah. Uh, it sends the wrong message. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. Like, you know, I've asked people who's behind this, uh, and I'll post the link here and I'll put it in the replay notes, but like, I'm doing it kind of cautiously because. You know, I've been told by somebody, okay, yeah, this is being done by Safada New York, and then you're telling me no, no, you're, no. You're, you're telling me maybe it's not, and I don't see anything on this page as to who is involved with it. It it, it says New York. What's the group? New York Vape Shops. I mean, I I don't know who that is. Uh, 
I have no idea. I, I saw the crowdfunding campaign and uh, I brought it up briefly, but uh, things have been so incredibly busy and hectic here that yeah, sure. I haven't actually been able to follow up. But um, I can assure you it, it is not the, the Svada chapter doing this because we all agreed on a strategy and a public f- crowdfunder was not part of that. So I don't know. So, guys, before you give any money, I don't know what the hell this is. I, and I I don't know. I, I just have no idea. Uh, certainly you would think that some, you know, if there's, Established oh, organiz- hold, hold on, I'm just, I'm just getting a, a message in here. It, it is New York's Svada. Uh, apparently it is not the, uh, let me see, it's the founders of the chapter. Uh, one of the shops apparently thought it would help to set this up. So it, it, uh, well, I, it seems it, a little confusing. It, 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 me, is, it is confusing because there's nowhere on this that says definitively who's behind this. It has a bunch of names on it. It has, a couple, it has some links. It's thank you to some people. I don't, I don't understand this. It's, this is not good fundraising. This is not being done properly. Uh, it, I don't know. I, well, I, I, one I of my worries it, is that... that one of my worries is that if, if you do a public crowdfunder, you basically show uh, your opponents how quick you can raise funds. Well, that's true. But then again, when you raise, when when you and, and Safada, California, North and South, raised all those funds, I mean, they were writing articles about that in England. Uh, yeah, which sort of backfired, by the way. How so? Because uh, what they appar- were... Apparently, what, my punishment... For, 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 for those of you who didn't read the article, it was basically... You know, the, the the vaping groups are, I don't know, you, you probably remember it better than me. I just, I thought it was ridiculous. So what do they, what do they say more or less? Uh, well, the headline was uh, E-Sig Big Wigs uh, raised $110,000 to silence critics. Yeah. Which, yeah. of course, is a sensationalist bullshit headline. Yes. Uh, I was actually talking to that reporter for on a completely different topic, and he said he was writing something positive about E6 and blah, blah, blah. And somewhere in between, he asked me, he said, what's with this rumor about stuff in California? And I told him, well, it's not a rumor. Uh, in fact, I'm involved in it, but we're not going to sue the state, so I'm not sure where that rumor is coming from. And I basically explained what was going on, and he took the whole thing out of context. It uh, caused a lot of fuss, and uh, apparently as a result, uh, I'm going to be punished by being sent to media training. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. In other, in I, other I words, uh, I yeah. <laughs> I don't see it much as a, a, a punishment. Uh, it's rather, uh, rather a nice gift, but uh, the article was, was taken out of context. Um, it did, however, cause a lot of news. Yeah. Well, as long as they keep spelling your name right, I guess. Well, listen, hey, you guys did great over there. I, I hope I hope we can have similar success here because we're, you know, the threats are different, but a lot of them are the same and none of them are good. Um, it's 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 bad on, on both coasts here. It's bad everywhere. I mean, I get this. Yeah, I'm aware of the, the, what, what New York is facing. It, it's, uh, uh, I, w- I would say, just as bad as, as California in a different way, but... Uh, Different bills. You know, I get this. Story. You probably get this update from Bill Godshall. He goes over all the goings on and yep. in the and and did you did you happen happen a chance to uh, to read this week's update? Uh, the one that arrived today or yesterday? Uh, not yet. Yeah, well, I read it and it it's the worst I've ever seen. I mean, he follows everything that's going on with uh, vaping and tobacco policy, and it's the worst I have ever seen. I, I I don't usually reply to Bill. I just I said Bill, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. I mean, I, I read your things every week. This is the, this is insane. 
And he replied back and he said, it is, but we've never been more organized. So we have some hope. And uh, I think examples well, I, of... I know there's, there's quite a bit of organization going on in New York. Okay, I, ho I, I hope it works. Um, I, I haven't seen any evidence uh, that it's going to yet. Well, the, the thing is, uh, if, if the Spada chapter in New York needs help, we're here to help. Because one of the really cool things that we do as chapters, we all help each other. Of course, yeah. It's, you know, it's, one, it's one organization and it's got centralized structures that are local. Right. Plus, uh, what happens in California goes over the nation. What happens in New York goes over the nation. Yeah. Well, maybe it's maybe it's time for a, a meet. I, I don't know. I, I'm not involved directly with with that organization, really. But I don't know. This what I'm looking at isn't. It's certainly not going as well as what you did. But at least somebody's trying to do something that's it's worth something. But um. Anyway, listen. What you've done is a shining example of what can be done, and I think you're right. And I think Bill's right. I think there is more organization now than there has ever been. Uh, you have proved what can happen in a short period of time. You have a, a war chest now that can affect public opinion. It will. Um, the question is, will it be yeah, enough? I certainly hope so. No, it will. I mean, there's no, you know, when you spend money on propaganda, whether it's good propaganda or bad propaganda, there's, there's such a thing as both, it affects public opinion. It just does. It works. It always works. The question is, you know, who's going to do it more effectively and who's going to do it more, more is more important so we'll see uh right. i mean well we're, we're getting more bang for our buck because we, we're not taking a single dime in our pockets like our enemies do and we don't have the corporate overhead and all this massive structure around us like big tobacco big pharma and public health so we, we get a lot more for our dollars yeah that's a good point very good point. which is a good thing <laughs> yeah well listen congratulations to you congratulations to all the vapors in california uh, the fight is long from being over, but this is a huge step forward, and, and you've uh, you've made an example of what can happen uh, just with some organization, with some grassroots efforts, and with some people who you know just know what they're doing. It, well, shit, you didn't even know what you were doing with the with the with the fundraising, and look what you did. So you know maybe somebody does know what they're doing; they could do even well, better. It's blood, sweat, and tears. Blood, sweat, and tears. But if you really put the effort in, uh, give a positive message, I think it can work. Oh, well, I think you're right. Thank you so much for joining me for the update. There he goes, everybody. Uh, sure. Thank you for having me on. And, uh, uh, always. Looking forward to uh, going around the universe. <laughs> we're, going, we're going everywhere tonight. We're going everywhere. <laughs> okay. Good night. Cheers, Stefan. There he goes, everybody. Stefan Didak from uh, Safada in California. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for the update, sir. Okay, so... Uh, Let's do it. Let's let's go around the universe, ladies and gentlemen. Let's let's have some fun. Hey now. Yes, I'm going down. I'm going down, 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 down. Yes, I got my big feet in the window. Got my head on the ground. 
Okay. So, so here's where I kind of got the idea to, to talk about. It's not just the universe. It's, it's really, this is about existence, I suppose. Um, I wanted to do something like this for a long time. And then I saw a news article that really kind of said, whoa. And, and I kind of woke up a little bit to, wow, there's some stuff really happening. This is a story about Mars One. This is a, uh, a not-for-profit in the state of in the state of in the country of of, of Holland, I believe. I, I think this is from the, I think they're from the Netherlands, the Netherlands, and they're they're attempting to raise money to send some people, some of them just regular people, some of them PhDs and all kinds of sciences and people from all walks of life. They're going to send them to Mars. The catch, it's a one-way ticket. They won't come back. In other words, and 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 first of all, they got they they narrowed it down to a hundred people. Now, first thing I said was, "Geez, where the hell did they find a hundred people to go on a suicide mission? They're going to die when they get there. the 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 travel is seven months to get to Mars, and then assuming that they land safely, keep in mind." that 50% of unmanned voyages to Mars, which is all that's been done so far, 50% of them are unsuccessful. So they got a 50-50 shot of even landing. Let's assume they land, right? With the technology they have, they can only survive for 68 days. Just over two months. This is, this is a suicide mission. So I'm like, where did they find 100 people? Well, they didn't find 100 people. They found 200,000 people who wanted to do this. And they went through that 200,000 and then selected 100 of, I don't know what their criteria was, but they selected 100. Of those 100, 24 will actually go. And they plan on doing, I don't know, it almost sounds like a reality TV thing. I, it's, it's hard to tell, but they, they plan to be televising the the training and the trials and and everything to, to, to whittle, you know, those 100 people who have been chosen down to the 24 who will actually go. Um, these are people, you know, some of them were as young as 18. Of the, of, I'm talking about not of the 200,000. Of the 100 that were selected, the youngest are 20 years old, though they were 18 when they originally applied. Uh, the oldest is a gentleman who's 60. So, I mean, I, I had a lot of questions about this. I mean, why? Why go on a suicide mission? They will not come back. This is the, there's no, they're quite, they're quite explicit. There is no return ticket. You're going to go there. You're going to be there a couple months and you're going to die. And they got 200,000 people who wanted to do this. Now, what I thought initially was, well, shit, why not do it on the moon? I mean, at least we know a way to get back. We've done that before. And I don't really know why they're choosing Mars. I, I have no idea. I mean, it is a first. You know, no no human has ever walked on on Mars. So, you know, maybe it's a Mount Everest type thing. But, I, you know, their, their goal is for some sort of colonization, which is an interesting concept, which is something I think in terms of the long term, I mean, the long term prospect 
for this planet may be something that we need to do. But I mean, today, what makes sense is we've got over 70% of the earth is water, which means if I'm being really conservative, 50% of it is habitable. I mean, if the, if the U.S. Army can have a very mobile, you know, aircraft carrier with thousands of people who can be, you know, fed and clothed and um, launch massive military operations, well, then you can have a stationary city with thousands of people just living their lives. Um, and there is some research and development and science going into doing that kind of thing. But I don't think there's like 200,000 people lining up for, for, you know, getting started with this. I don't think there's billions of dollars behind it yet. You can learn more at seasteading.org. And it's, you know, this project maybe maybe the reason why it's not as big as this suicide mission to Mars is because it's largely a libertarian thing to, to make new countries that can create their own laws that aren't bound by any existing governments because the ocean is fair game. The ocean, there, there isn't, you know, there, there, there are no, there is no government in the ocean, right? So you can make a new country there. Anyway, this whole mission to Mars and this willingness for hundreds of thousands of people to give their lives for just the first tiny step of what would have to be decades and decades of research into actually making it work, into actually making Mars be habitable in a sustainable way by humans. It made me think, you know, I don't look up at the sky as much anymore because you can barely see it in New York. We have so much light pollution that you're, you know, you're lucky to see any stars, really. But I used to a lot. I used to just, you know, I, I grew up a lot in little upstate New York and I went to college in upstate New York where you could see the stars just about any clear night. And... Sometimes that's one of the best ways you can spend an evening. Just lie on the on the hood of your car, gaze up, and look at the stars, and just kind of wonder what's out there. There was one man who asked a similar question in a very unique way, and his name was Enrico Fermi. And I'd like to go into some of the reasons why he asked this different question, which I'll present to you in a few moments. Some of you probably already know what it is, but if we, the universe is vastly enormous. It's, it's not just big, it's everything. It's everything that has ever existed and all that will ever exist. To put it in perspective, and this is difficult to do, but I'm going to try to make it a little bit easier. A picture a grain of sand, which in and of itself is hard to do. It's helpful if you have one, but you can get pretty close. For every grain of sand on the face of the earth, everywhere, for every single grain of sand, for every grain of sand, there are 10,000 stars in the universe. Our sun, of course, being one of them. Now, in terms of if you're if you're thinking about well you know that, well that's interesting but it's really it's more interesting to think of well a lot of those stars are you know 
they're in the process of supernovaing. A lot of them are, are white dwarves where there's nothing, you know. So, okay, so there's that many stars, but how many of those stars are like our sun? Because then that leads us down the line of, well, if there's stars like our sun, maybe there's planets like Earth, and maybe there are species like us. So let's talk about the sun-like stars. There are 500 billion billion sun-like stars. That number isn't particularly useful. Nobody can possibly imagine 500 billion billion. So how about this? Instead of thinking about all the sand in the earth, which nobody can do, let's just talk about all of the sand that you can hold in your hand. That's something you can think about that. Everyone's been on the beach. Everyone's picked up a handful of sand and let it sift through their fingers, right? So what what about in that handful of sand, which is about 10,000 grains of sand? Well, in those in those 10,000 grains, which you can easily hold in your hand, that equals a billion stars. Again, there's many more in the universe because there's a whole lot more sand than you could fit in your hand. But at least this gives it some sort of perspective. A handful of sand, 10,000 grains of sand, equals a billion stars. 5% of those stars are sun-like. That gets us down to a somewhat manageable 50 million sun-like stars in the handful of sand in your hand. Now, what about if we talk about the percentage of sun-like stars that have Earth-like planets? That's important. There's clearly something going on with the conditions on Earth. There's the heat and the gravitational um, effects of, of the sun. Then there's the Earth, which is a certain distance away, which has a certain atmosphere because of a whole bunch of things. But whatever it is, you know, if we were... We were, you know, if we were a little bit closer, it'd be too hot. If it was a little bit colder, it'd be too far away. Um, it, it's a, it's a, it's a very careful balance that has led to life and an, an intelligent life of that on Earth. So there are varying estimates on the percentage of sun-like stars that have Earth-like planets. On the high range, the percentage is fifty. On the low range. The percentage is 22. Let's just go with 22. Let's go with the the super conservative uh, the super conservative estimate, right? So, if 22 percent of the sun-like stars have Earth-like planets, we're talking about one percent of all the stars have Earth-like planets. 100 billion Earth-like planets, right? So, if there's a hundred. 100 billion Earth-like planets for every grain of salt in the world, or for the handful of sand, we're looking at 1 million Earth-like planets. So if 1% of those Earth-like planets develop life, and just 1% of that 1% of Earth-like planets get to where we as humans are with respect to technology... What are we looking at? We're, all right, we'll throw we'll, we'll we'll throw away the handful of sand and just talk about the universe for now, okay? That was that's going to equal ten quadrillion or ten million billion 
intelligent civilizations in the universe. We're back into the realm of unfathomable numbers, so let's pare that down a little bit. Let's just move into our galaxy, the Milky Way. We have one billion Earth-like planets, and then if you take the 1% of the 1%, then we have 100,000 intelligent civilizations. That's a manageable number. You can't really picture the scope of all of them, but you can certainly imagine 100,000 intelligent civilizations, which are about or more as advanced as we are. That's a lot. And that's just our galaxy. So the question, Fermi's question or Fermi's paradox is, where is everybody? There are organizations, or at least one major one, that does a lot of, uh, is constantly monitoring for signals that come from, from space, that anything that would resemble any kind of intelligent life. The first person to do this was Tesla. He started doing it in 1896. Of course, it's Tesla. Others continued, um, and then there are some more centralized or more focused efforts that began in the 1960s. SETI, the, uh, the organization that does most of the, the searching for any kind of signals out there in space that would clue us into the fact that there is intelligent life somewhere in our galaxy is still very active today. They've got the best and brightest scientists using state-of-the-art technology. They have never detected anything, nothing. Not so much as a blip that suggests that it came from anything that had intelligence that approaches or exceeds ours. Where is everybody? Now keep this in mind, our sun is very young. There are many, many stars in our galaxy that are far older with Earth-like planets. Surely some of them have developed intelligent life, and surely given all of that extra time that they ought to have, that, they, that, they, that they've had, they, they, they must be much more technologically advanced than we. Let's, you know, in terms of the life of the, of the universe and our galaxy, a thousand years is literally a drop in the bucket. But let's just do that. Let's think about a thousand years. A civilization in our galaxy with a very modest 1,000 year head start on us. These civilizations should be, I, I hate to use the term, but they should be light years ahead of us. Just think of the technology that existed on Earth a thousand years ago compared to today. Now think about a civilization that's got a million or even a billion years older than us. The things that they could do. Where is everybody? If you think about the way that advancing technology works, just to put it into some kind of pop culture perspective in our own lifetime, everybody, everybody's seen the movie Back to the Future, right? Marty McFly went from the 1980s to the 1950s. And there were some big differences in terms of the world between the 1950s and the 1980s. But what if instead of 
a teenager from the 1980s going back into the 1950s. Think about a teenager today going back into the 1980s. The differences in technology are, are many, many more times. It, it, it's, it's a huge difference, a huge, huge difference. In the 1980s, there was no internet. There was no way to you, where you could instantly take something out of your pocket and communicate with audio and video live to somebody across on the other side of the planet. The differences between technology, transportation, how we share our lives on the internet to a teenager in the 1980s, I mean, their head would explode. It's much more different than Marty McFly being going back and the teenagers being curious about distorted music playing out of an electric guitar. So that's 30 years. Let's let's do 250 or so years, right? Imagine taking a time machine back to 1750, a time when the world was in a permanent power outage, long-distance communication meant either yelling loudly or firing a cannon in the air, and all transportation ran on animals that ate hay. So when you get there, you take a guy, and you bring him back in your time capsule. You bring him back to 2015. And walk him around and, and, and see what he does when you show him around. You can't even begin to understand what he would be thinking. He would, he would surely think that it's impossible. Shiny capsules racing at 60 miles an hour down a highway. Talking to people who were on the other side of the ocean just the day before. Hearing music that was made 100 years ago. And then taking out a little magic device that could capture anything that's happening and send it anywhere you want. They, they, walking around with Google Maps in your pocket. I mean, you wouldn't be able to process any of this. Forget about explaining the International Space Station or nuclear weapons or general relativity. But let's say you take that same 250 years and go the other direction. You send that guy back to, from 1750, you send him back to 1500, right? Now you show him around. You show, or, or you do the, I'm sorry, you, you bring the 1500 guy up into the 1750s. That's what I meant to say. Now, there would be some things that would be surprising to him. But it's not a radical difference. Because the difference between 1500 and 1750 wasn't that big of a deal. He'd learn some interesting things about physics. He'd be interested in some of the developments on how governments were working. He'd have to change his idea on how the world map has been laid out. But transportation, communication, nothing really changed. So we're on this path of technology that's expanding and advancing at a logarithmic rate. If you want to find out what's happening in the next 10 years in our world with technology, looking at the past 10 years would not be particularly useful. You'd be better off looking at the last 10 months. And that brings us to the very, I don't know, interesting, scary, we just don't know what's going to happen with this next phase, which is artificial intelligence. 
a real, you know, if I were to really give the subject the due that it, that it's needed, I'd need about three or four hours. Um, and if I was responsible about it, I'd bring on some experts who certainly know more than me. But I can tell you some things. Basically, we're, we are at the precipice of this logarithmic change in artificial intelligence coming very soon, very, very soon. I'm not talking about 100 years. I'm talking at a stretch, at the longest, most conservative estimates, 40 years, more likely 10, 10 to 15. So what's going to happen? Well, nobody knows what's going to happen other than we know what these new forms of artificial intelligence are going to be capable of in terms of actual understanding. Right now, the artificial intelligence can do some very, very interesting things that are very specific. You could build a computer to beat a, ch a chess champion. You've been able to do that for a long time. You can even build a computer to beat a Jeopardy champion. That's pretty recent. But they're all pretty focused. And what's missing really is horsepower. Uh, horsepower and, and software. But the horsepower is a limiting factor at this point. That limitation is about to be obliterated very, very soon. The best artificial intelligence that we have today is still not as smart as a monkey. Put Fred aside. Fred can use an iPad. Most, most monkeys can't. But that's about to radically change in less than 10 years. It's not even going to be something that we're going to look at them passing how, how intelligent a monkey is or what, or, or the things that they can, it, they're going to shoot right past the, the monkey. They're going to shoot right past us. These machines will be more intelligent than humans on a level of, you know, how we're, we're smarter than a monkey, right? We're a lot smarter than a monkey. These machines or this intelligence will be thousands of times smarter than we are. And we just don't know what's going to happen with that. Um, there is a significant chance, it's almost a certainty, that there will be some level of these machines being autonomous. Will they be benevolent? Will they be predatory? We don't really know. And we're really not in any position, well, we can guess all we want, but we really don't know. I mean, look what we've done. I've been talking a lot about the scientific advances that this country or this world has gone through. Um, and it's all good. Not, up till now, at least. It's, it's, it's good stuff. It's the tr more uh, ability to uh, free range of motion. Medicine improves people's health. It's... Technology has been the, one, the, the greatest thing for our species. And while we've been making these logarithmic jumps in science, at the same time, philosophy, doesn't, it's, it doesn't just remain, it's not even the dark ages. Philosophy, by and large, is a thousand years behind the dark ages. The most prevalent form of philosophy today in the world is one of the big three. 
Judaism, Christianity, or Islam. 95% of the world, this is their philosophy. 95% of the world. You know, in scientific experiments, usually um, there's a criteria for publication. Um, your experiment, whatever it is on, needs to show at least a 5% a degree of confidence where when, when against total chance of your results happening, you have to be 95% likely that it is not by chance. So the amount of people in the world who are rejecting these primitive first and worst attempts at philosophy is just barely, just, just barely statistically significant. And if you go on a country-by-country country basis, I guarantee you will have some that are, that population is not anywhere near statistically significant. So while we, we're making these leaps and bounds of in science, why is it that philosophy, that which doesn't dictate how to build a skyscraper or an airplane or a spaceship for that matter, but just dictates how we should treat each other as human beings. We're still thousands of years with no progress, none. We had a really good chance and a really good start with Aristotle. But then something happened, nothing, nothing happened. That's what happened. For, thousands of years. Nobody really improved or expanded upon his, his philosophy in a significant way. And, and instead, others did make significant advances, if you want to call it that. It's really going backwards, but they, took, they, they went with Plato. This manifested itself um, probably most significantly with Kant, Immanuel Kant. And this man, I'm not going to go through everything, but basically everything that is taught in universities, everything that is taught, everything that is believed by most people, whether or not they're familiar with his philosophy, it comes from him. And it comes from Plato. Kant just made it too, he just made it so complicated, people were afraid to say they didn't understand it. And that's what we have today. Our morality is a mixture of um, millennia-old religious uh, philosophy, quote-unquote, and Kant, and those that wrote PhD theses on his work. Nietzsche did some good stuff, but it wasn't until Rand, until we got, I think, is the only thing that's really going to help our species survive which is a rational and provable case for the non-aggression principle. And what I say by that is the non-aggression principle, it's, it's really simple. It basically says that no human has the right to initiate force against another human unless force has been initiated on them first. It's really simple. It's really logical. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, right? 
it's not that hard to prove it. I mean, Rand did some really good work, and a lot of it is a lot of trench work in metaphysics and epistemology, but it only happened in 1950. That was 65 years ago. I mean, talk about a drop in the bucket. And if you look around the world, you can see, forget about her for a minute, let's just, let's just focus on the principle. If you look around the world everywhere, in fact, you can't find anywhere that subscribes to this principle. Everywhere on the face of the earth, you have active resistance either through the state or from state control or, or from state that's controlled by religion. That's where it's worst. Where the initiation of violence is completely acceptable when none has been initiated by the other party. We have cartoonists being executed for drawing a picture of an imaginary man. Who is the victim of that cartoon? Who has been harmed? Yet these people, they will tell you, and they believe it, that they have every, not only justification, but moral duty to execute a cartoonist for drawing a picture of an imaginary man. They would have been doing something wrong if they hadn't. That's their philosophy. How did this survive for 2,000 years? Give or take. It's unfathomable, but it's the world we live in. Just to give you a a much uh, a much less extreme example of this. I got a friend. We bust each other's balls a lot. You know, we're friends. One day he says to me, "Says Russ, looks like you put on a few pounds there." And I have. Russ, looks like you put on a few pounds there, buddy. So I said, "Well, every time I fuck your mom, she makes me a sandwich. Bang, crack." Smack me right in the face, close fist. And I kind of thought I was kind of prepared for it. I know that when you say something like that to somebody's mother, they feel that it's justified to react with physical violence, even though he's my friend. Now, he's a Christian, a Catholic, actually. I'm an atheist. So what did I do? I turned the other cheek. Luckily, the irony was not lost on him. He didn't hit me again. And I talked to him. I'm like, well, why do you think it's okay for me to say something and for you to respond with physical violence? And he went into, well, for my anyone who says something about me, I'm like, have I ever met your mother? I don't know who she is. I wouldn't be able to pick her out of a lineup. I just said something. It could not have possibly hurt something. Certainly not as, as much as my cheek hurts right now. Obviously, smacking or, or hitting someone in the face for talking shit on your mother is a lot different than storming a newspaper office and slaughtering people. But this is a difference in degree, not of kind. Nobody who accepts the non-aggression principle as a way to live your life would ever do that. You'd violate the principle. If there is no victim, there is no crime. 
It's so simple. We can build a skyscraper, but we have 95% of the world who thinks that it's okay. Not Maybe they don't think it's okay for them to initiate violence, but they're certainly willing to let it happen by proxy, to let somebody, I don't know, just make a uniform, a badge, give them a, give them a gun, and okay, well, for them, it's okay. Remember that guy I had on last week, Sean Thomas? You know, I was surprised, actually, at the amount of, uh, at the number of people, because it was more than 5% which is generally what we're dealing with here, more than 5% that said, good, good on that guy for standing up on his rights. But well, I don't think it was more than 50. Most of the people were just like, you should just do what they tell you. You should just do what a police officer tells you to do. My question is why? Because they took a class and they get a shiny piece of metal to wear? That gives them some extra rights? One thing that really woke me up with the interview, from the interview with Mr. Thomas, is his view, forget about his methods, his view, I never I never really thought of it in the way that he does. He said, the power comes from us, the people. We do not exist because of them. They exist because of us. We have the power, not them. We give them the power. We stand on top of them. And that's how he lives his life. So as to the question, of, well, why should you just do whatever they tell you? Well, a good answer would be because, well, they might kill you or kick the shit out of you, even if you're not doing anything illegal. Happens all the time. And that would be a good answer of why you should do what they say. But it's not a good, it's not a good reason for why they do what they do. No victim, no crime. That's not the way the law works. So, I mean, there's our, there's our journey. I mean, going back to where is everybody? Well, there's a few things. Number one, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter where everybody is. Because of the state that our world is in, where 95% of the people ascribe to some sort of irrational philosophy for the way to live your life, I'm not too worried about talking to other people. Although it would be interesting to see if they were able to somehow find a better way or, or have philosophy advance at the same rate as technology. It would be kind of cool to figure out, you know, how, well, how'd you guys do it? So where we left off, where did we leave off in it? We left off in our Milky Way, right? I went on that tangent about, yeah, we were about 100,000 intelligent civilizations in our galaxy alone. And like I said, given that so many, so many suns are millions and billions of years older than ours, we should have like ridiculously advanced technologies and uh, and civilizations, I should say, in our own Milky Way. We should hear something. Or they should hear us. We're broadcasting. Now, we haven't been broadcasting for very long. As far as I can tell, the first 
sort of um, communication that actually went out of our atmosphere and, and, and into space was an unfortunate one. Uh, I believe it was uh, in 1936 when Hitler was addressing the Olympic Games. So, <laughs> I mean, there's always that. <laughs> that was our first. That sucks, huh? So, you know, there's always a chance that somebody heard this and said, fuck these guys, right? But, you know, we haven't heard anything. Maybe they have heard us. We are, we're broadcasting every day now. Maybe they have heard us. So why haven't they come by to say hi? Um, you know, given that a lot of these super advanced um, civilizations that are almost sure to exist in our own galaxy, it would be, it's just so unlikely that they don't. Well, why didn't anybody stop by to say hi? I understand there's a group of people out there that think they have, that think there's evidence that they have. I'm sorry, I don't buy it. I don't buy, I don't, I haven't seen any of the Area 51 stuff. Like, you know what, guys, you might be right, but you haven't convinced me. But we can still ask questions. Maybe super intelligent life already did visit Earth, but before we were here, before we were here. this Earth has been around for billions of years. Most of the time, there wasn't anything going on. A lot of it, there wasn't any life at all. And then when there was life, it was just, you know, simple prokaryotic cells, like not doing much of anything. Now, for a long time, the dominant force of life for hundreds of millions of years was the dinosaurs. Now, keep in mind, obviously, we as humans, we rule the earth now. You know, we are absolutely the most powerful, dominant, um, planet-changing species out there. This is our planet, right? For better or for worse. It's ours. We've been here for like a, a few million years at best. And most of it, we weren't ruling the planet. I mean, it's only been in the last like, you know, 10,000 years or so. So they may have visited. They may have visited multiple times. And they would have probably come to the conclusion that these gigantic dinosaurs... Well, that's what this planet is. That's their life form. And it, and it probably would be today if that fucking asteroid didn't crash down. That was a very, very successful species or, you know, group of species. Hundreds of millions of years. That's a pretty good go. Uh, I think we'll be really lucky to hit that number. At least the way we're going. What another Another possibility that the galaxy has already been colonized that there are these super intelligent life forms that are able to do what we're just starting to do now by sending 24 people to Mars. That will be our first step. Maybe they've already taken 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 steps and really done some hardcore, hardcore uh, colonization. So maybe they've done that. And maybe we live in the sticks. I mean, this happened in our planet. You know, there was areas that were very much, uh, you know, in, in Europe, um, Asia, China in particular, who had um, vast improvements in technology, colonization. And then you had other areas like the Middle East where people were basically, you know, nomads traveling around while China had, in, uh, not English, had language, had writing, um, had science. In the Middle East, they didn't have anything, but somehow 
that's where God decided to send people, to talk to people, people who couldn't read or write, not to China, where they had real science, pen and paper. No, they he, he sent them to the Middle East. Okay. Right. Anyway, things take place in different areas. More habitable. There's a there's a range of uh, of reasons for it. But bottom line, there's some little islands out in the middle of nowhere. Then there's people on them, and they didn't get colonized for a long time. Why? Because they're in the fucking sticks. Who knows? Maybe our sun is in the sticks of the Milky Way. Who knows? Maybe the whole concept of physical coloniza colonization of different areas is not a particularly uh, is not a goal of these more advanced species. They may have figured out a way to stabilize their planet into the energy that they need. And I mean, put it this way. Remember the Matrix, the movie? So I'm not talking about like, like, like in that scenario, you know, you had machines that ruled the earth um, and they were using humans as a energy source and to keep them, you know, somewhat stable, they created this world, which was all the, you know, sensation and perception and, and, and consciousness was the Matrix. Well, I'm not talking about that concept, but I am talking about what if a civilization said, you know, living is what's killing us, right? Every breath you take, every, you know, every time you move around, you're wearing your body down with everything that you do. What's the point? All we want is a consciousness that's comfortable. All we want a consciousness that's rich with pleasure, enjoyment, challenge. You can throw in some adversity there if you want. I don't know. Whatever you want, really. There's no need to be ambulatory. You could today take a human whose average life expectancy is somewhere in the 70s, right? Now, if you were to take them and put them in... Uh, well, pretty much the equivalent of uh, cryogenically freezing them, right? You know, you're not conscious, but you are alive. If you scale that back a little bit, you know, you can preserve a human body for a long, long time. All that's missing is for the brain to be active and functional. You could give the, the human body, anybody, any living life form, enough nutrients, um, perfect air supply or whatever you need. You know, you could, you could put them in a little chamber, and have him live for hundreds of years. Today you could do that. So what if what if this other species, what if this other civilization figured out this is hey, we could do this too. We could have some machines do the work for us, make sure we're being fed and 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 everything else, you know, we're in a little tube, but our minds are free to roam wherever we want and create civilizations and and um and communities within our own consciousness. I don't know. Sounds pretty good to me, as long as it's voluntary. Or, what if these super advanced civilizations are scary monsters who kill everybody? You know, kind of like, there's been a hundred movies about it, but, you know, they're bad dudes. And once... And they, maybe they are they maybe they are secretly monitoring us, and they're just waiting for us to get to a certain point where we could become dangerous 
in terms of the, our level of technology, and then they'll just come here and kill us and take over all our resources. Okay. Maybe. Maybe. But those other civilizations that aren't the scary predator psychos, maybe they know about them. And they're being very careful not to broadcast their location because they know what's going to happen. Maybe that's why we can't hear them. Maybe these higher civilizations are aware of us and they are using us for entertainment. Because if they really are that much smarter and that, more, that much more advanced than we are, well, we would make a hell of a reality show. And maybe it's all just a matter of gravity. Maybe those signals are getting to us. But time, time is a funny thing. Um, it's a constant for us, more or less, in our experience, anywhere on the earth. I mean, there are actually minuscule differences, but a second is a second. An hour is an hour. It's not detectable by humans, the, the, the differences in time. Even when you travel space, I mean, it's negligent, right? But we have our time, and it's based upon, more, more than anything, the effect of gravity that the sun has on the earth. Gravity changes time. This is a, this is just, it's just a part of the theory of relativity. What if... You have these super intelligent civilizations elsewhere, and maybe their sun is sun-like, but maybe it's really, really big. And maybe the Earth is, I don't know, a certain size, but maybe a different distance. You have all this changing of the nature of time, where the amount of time for me to say, hi, how you doing? My name is Russ, is approximately two seconds here on Earth. Maybe it takes them to do that 12 days because of the difference in time, because of the difference in gravity. These signals that they're sending to us, when they approach us, there would just be too much noise in the signal for us to even be able to even think about taking in that much space, that that much time for so little communication. Or maybe it's exactly the opposite. That for us to say, Hi, how you doing? Takes them, it is equivalent to 12 days in their time. So there's all these questions about where is everybody? And no evidence that there is anyone other than us. None. Despite the overwhelming odds that right in our own backyard, figuratively speaking, there should be tons of it. Where is everybody? Oh, shit. Um, I don't know how long this person's been on hold, but I've just been talking. And uh, well, I'll pick up the call. 570, you're on the air. Hello? Yeah. 
Hey, Russ, it's Chris Hughes. What's going on, man? Hey, Chris, how you doing? All right, I'm sorry I didn't get the chance to call in earlier. I got tied up with a customer at the shop. I uh, tell you what, you want to call and touch base. You want to touch base on Buffalo, yeah, right? Yes. Okay, if 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 you would, let me uh, give me five minutes to finish this topic, and then I'll bring you on. You got five minutes to wait? Absolutely. Take your time, sir. Thank you. Okay, thanks. So where is everybody? Uh, when you really start to think about it, um, about everything that would be needed for us to really get out there and do a proper investigation, or for that matter, for any of these other civilizations that are surely out there to care enough to spend the energy to come say hi to us, well, it's either gonna happen or it isn't. Um, it's interesting, it's exciting, and it doesn't matter. What's more interesting or useful, I think, for me, when I started thinking about all these things, is what about just my life? What about your life? How far can you really go in time? Well, obviously, you're scheduled to live around 75, 80 years, whatever it is, right? On average. So, how does that really translate into how you can affect those who are most important to you? Well, it's probably useful to, who's the most important person to you? Well, for me, that would be my parents. And for them, that would be their parents. And I remember my grandparents very well. Now, in the beginning of your life, so you're, you're well past this point, but I think you probably did a really good job. We almost all do as grandchildren. It's hard to fuck that up, right? We got our grandparents. They just, they're just happy to hold you and play with you until you shit yourself, and then you, they hand you to, 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 their, to their kids and they clean up the mess. It's easy, you know. I'm sure we've all made our grandparents very happy much more complicated with our parents, particularly when we start to uh, hit the teenage years, but uh, most people make it out okay. And there's a great deal you can do with your own life to affect positively on your parents. When I started thinking about that though, um, I came to the conclusion for myself that I've done far too little compared to what they've done for me. I, I do aim to change that. Unfortunately, I have, well, not unfortunately, I think um, prudently, I've made the decision to, at least for now, I, I don't see myself having children of my own. And that probably more than anything upsets my parents more. I mean, most parents, they, they want the grandkids. I don't think they're getting them. I think I'm making a prudent decision. I mean, look around. Really. Look around the world. How many of these people really should be having kids, right? I think I'm doing the right thing. I just don't think I'd be good at it. But for most people, they do decide. And you've got some 
now you've got probably the greatest, the greatest degree of actually making some sort of impact on a child. Your own flesh and blood, your genes. And then hopefully your children will have children of their own. So what are we looking at here in terms of time? Well, from the from the life that you've touched from your grandparents to the life that you will touch for your grandchildren, you're looking at about 235 years of humans that you can really touch in a significant way, your family. And that's probably, I, I think, the most useful way to think about time as it pertains to you. Of course, friends are important. All your you know, your friends on Facebook and Twitter, sure, you can send them a happy birthday or well wishes when they're having a bad day, but how much does it really fucking matter, really? Family matters. Your friends that you see every day, they matter. But you're looking, you're looking at about 235 years. Now, you can be, nobody can be, a, you can approach immortality for better or for worse. But immortality with, with respect to our species, some have achieved close to that. Some simply by writing some music that people really like. Some by astonishing scientific advances. Some by writing a good play. Keep in mind, nobody read Poe when he was alive. Nobody ever bought a Van Gogh. He wasn't painting to become immortal, and he is. He, he just wanted, he wanted pussy, and he didn't get it. The point is, is that you've got, this 235-year stretch you could do with your family, right? And you can go beyond that, but you shouldn't expect anything. If you're going to spend some significant effort to go outside of this 235-year box and try to do something that's really immortal, you can't have any expectations. All you do is you try as best you can and if you're happy, you should be able to sleep real, real good. And that's what I'm working on. I guess this, um, this trip through the universe will be bookended, indeed, by vaping. I can't get away from the vaping. They keep sucking me back in. <laughs> No, but this is important. My friend Chris, he's on the line over there, and he knows some uh, stuff about what's going on in Buffalo. Hey, Chris, you there, sir? I am, sir. How's it going? It's just, that was a hard act to follow, man. <laughs> well, what um, the hell? well, whatever you're about to talk about, it certainly has more immediate impact on people's lives, so maybe this is actually the more important thing to talk about at this point. Right, right. Well, so, you know, I mean, you obviously, you know, I have Fat Cat Vapor Shop here in Central PA, and 
Um, I have a lot of friends up in the Buffalo area that have been vaping, and uh, Erie County, um, that is where Buffalo is located in New York, has been trying to pass a public use ban that has a very nefarious uh, uh, requirement in there that if shops, e-cig shops, want to be excluded from it, they need to register with the county, and I don't need to tell you where that all is going. You know? Well, no, do do. And what, what what's required for registration? That's important. If it's a simple fill out a form, but what is it? Well, it's a fill out a form, but I mean, our concern with that, with something like that, is now um, when do the regulations start? And oh, we've decided, by the way, that uh, you have to have your shop inspected twice a year, and mm. you know things like that. So we we don't want to see that happen, and we obviously we don't want to see the vape ban happen, and um, the ban itself is being pushed by, um, you know, Roswell Park Cancer Institute that's up there. So um, we've, I've been working on it just because there's nothing going on in PA, and I have friends up there. So I, I ran up there last week um, to lobby legislators, um, and they have a county board um, that's a little bit unique. There's 11 legislators and an executive, almost like a miniature governor in the county, and they have committee hearings and stuff, just almost like at a state level. So it makes it a little bit challenging um, to get with people because there's so many legislators. But uh, we've been working on it, and we got the, the, the thing delayed last week. Um, and they were supposed to throw it back to committee. And I've been working on something, um, and I've gotten um, David Gorlitz um, is going to ride up to Buffalo with me tomorrow. No kidding. And, that should uh, be interesting. Yeah, it should be really interesting. <laughs> Um, I reached out to Dave, and I had met him in a meeting in Philly a couple of months ago. And uh, the thing that makes it very interesting is in the 90s, he did a tremendous amount of work with Roswell Park Cancer Institute for smoking prevention. Um, and obviously, since then, David has broken with them and a lot of the other organizations. I don't know if anyone's, if the listeners, if they're not familiar with David, um, he in the 80s, he was a Winston man. Um, I remember seeing the ads when, because I'm an older guy. I remember seeing the ads with David and when I was a kid. And, well, not necessarily even a kid because it was in the eight. Gosh, I'm so old. I graduated from high school in 83. But um, So David's brother died of cancer in 88, and he left all of that behind, all that modeling work, and it was very lucrative um, when he was getting from the tobacco industry, and he went into smoking prevention. And uh, Reynolds actually sued him and lost. Um, so uh, fast forward here a little bit, David started working with all the people that are basically our enemies now, American Cancer Society, Lung Association, Heart Association, CDC, and they would put him on TV and also send him into school systems to talk about keeping kids from smoking, which seems innocent enough. But when e-cigs came out and these people did not like e-cigs, he broke with them all. So we're bringing him back to Buffalo. Um, in talking to David, he actually revealed to me that the county executive in Buffalo in the 90s, he had done such a good job in the school system. Um, they, he, he, uh, they had, he passed a proclamation that uh, one week in Erie County was David Gorlitz week. So. <laughs> and the difficulty we're having is uh, the uh, health committee that they've kicked the bill to doesn't want to let him testify. <laughs> Imagine that. How can they do so, that? Uh, well... They could, what happened was, you know, I've been doing a lot of work with um, Andy Osborne, you know, from Vapor Trail. You know Andy real well. And uh, he, what we, where we got into the problem was President's Day. Um, he called this morning to try and set up the, to schedule the appointment for him to speak before the health committee. And they said, eh, 
you know, usually we have the agenda finalized by Monday, but because uh, Monday was a holiday this week, we usually have it finalized by Friday. <laughs> so, um, you know, basically, Andy said, well, you know, if you took Monday off, um, this is now Monday today, you know. So uh, I think they realize who David is, and I think they're trying to hide from it. So basically what they've done is bypass the committee. And they said, well, we just wanted to make a couple changes, so we're not going to have a committee hearing for the bill. We're going to move right to a public hearing. Um, the difference with that is, is um, in the private, more private committee hearing they were going to have, if David testified, he, he had no time limit. You know, He could have gone in and said what he had to say. But now with the public hearing, he's going to be limited to three minutes. So uh, we're going to be going up, and I just wanted to put a shout-out to any listeners of the show that are in the Buffalo area or Rochester area. Um, the hearing, the public hearing, is going to be at the Erie County office building, the old Erie County office building in downtown Buffalo, and it's going to be, I believe, 2.15 on Thursday p.m. It's going to be really freaking cold, um, but there is ample parking there. There's like an indoor parking garage across the street and down if you can come, please do come. I, I mean, I'm driving up three and a half hours from Pennsylvania to help with this, and hopefully we can get it defeated. So. Well, well, I hope people join you. Um, if you could send me some sort of a link that has more info that I could put in the replay notes, that would be that would be helpful. Um, I will send you the bill, and I'll see if I can find a schedule for the hearing. They, they, like I said, they keep amending this. The first day we're going to have the committee hearing today and then the public hearing directly after it, which they just decided this morning. Also, um, what now, you, um, also what you might want to do, Chris, is look into the uh, like the rules, the, the procedure that the legislator yeah. follows for public comments, because sometimes they have this thing where, you know, somebody can go what up yield. with their... Yeah, well, n n yielding, yes, but also they can say I want to use part of my time to ask a question to somebody else so they can ask like some sort of an open-ended oh, okay. question ask some sort of an open-ended question to David which would give him more time they'd obviously be yielding theirs either through saying I yield my time or I want to ask a question but see if that's a possibility that might be a way to get him more time that's a terrific idea what we were planning was kind of to tell like to to, to um, sign up to go in order with David being last and just start uh, tell we one of us could tell David's story, and the next person could say some things that David want, and then he could just jump right into it with his three minutes. But um, that way that you have is a pretty good way. We can we have people at the courthouse that are very friendly with us that might answer that question for us when we That's get good. there. Um, Excellent. Thursday. Okay. Well, I will shoot you some. I will. Uh, do you want it in your email? Sure. Perfect. I'll shoot it to your email. I'll shoot you some links to uh, what's going on. And I appreciate you giving me some time on the show tonight to uh, put the word out on that. No, um, always trying to help. Uh, it's uh, nasty, and I appreciate you taking the time to go out of your state to help us here in uh, New York State. That's that's great. Well, it's got, it has to happen. You know, you got to stand up for other vapors and stand up for your friends, and that's what I'm all about. So. Right on, right on. Well, thanks for the info. Uh, I'll put it in the chat and in the replay notes as soon as I get it from you. And uh, thanks for updating everybody on this. All right. Hey, man, you have a good one. And uh, uh, shout out to everyone that's listening. So right talk on. to you later. Thanks so much. There he goes, everybody. Chris Hughes from the Fat Cat Paper Shop. Coming soon to a courthouse, maybe near you. So everything's been pretty heavy so far. Let's... 
Um, let's do this. Let's play a, this is a voicemail. Oh, excuse me. This is a voicemail from a gentleman explaining, I think, that he was going to be late for work. And then he saw a car accident. So here's the voicemail. 